Hello, I'm Dave Ingram. Today, as always, I'm joined by Max Rudolph for another Crossing Thin Ice podcast. Nothing in this podcast is investment advice. We are here to educate and perhaps entertain. In today's podcast, Max tells us about the ways that microorganisms that are often originally benign in their animal hosts spill over to infect humans with sometimes disastrous consequences. Diseases have periodically impacted geopolitics and socioeconomic circumstances since the dawn of civilization. A plague in the 14th century devastated European society, but the impact on the peasant population generated higher wages and increased mobility for survivors and reduced economic inequality. European ships brought smallpox to the Americas, reducing indigenous populations with no previous immunity by as much as 90%. Diseases jump from animals to humans in a process called zoonotic spillover. They are often benign in host animals, but, be, but can be fatal to humans. Examples include coronavirus, influenza, HIV, Ebola, and West Nile virus. As humans encroach further on natural ranges and evolving ecosystems, the likelihood of an existing or novel disease becoming transmissible among people increases. It appears that various animal coronavirus pathogens have jumped directly to humans in the recent past, often to children from host dogs. Among the current concerns are H5N1 bird flu, an influenza virus lethal to many birds, but not yet transmissible between humans. Influenza can jump directly from birds or pass through an intermediate uh, mammal, often a pig, where it can pick up genetic material that makes the virus easily transmissible among humans. The natural migratory patterns allow bird flu to travel geographically very quickly. Given the role of birds, especially chickens, in agriculture, this leads to culling the, of entire flocks when a single case is discovered. This leads to high prices for products like chicken wings and eggs until the chicken flocks are replenished. While influenza A and B have been studied for years, Influenza D may be the next virus to receive attention. It's found predominantly in cows. Viruses are one pathogen to worry about since they are built from RNA and reproduced by randomly matching up with a similar virus. Genetic changes can also occur through environmental stresses like heat or toxins. The resulting virus then competes with others that are circulating. One variant typically dominates until enough immunity is built up that another variant takes over. This can vary regionally and is impacted by vaccination rates and lockdowns. When a host animal and humans exist side by side, an immunity can gradually build up. This is why smallpox, which came to humans from cows, had less impact on farm-based societies who had domesticated cows, but was devastating when introduced in the Americas. These relationships can lead to vaccines being developed using small components of the virus. These can be live, dead, or weakened virus. Diseases can live asymptomatically in a host animal. They don't even notice them. When jumping to a human, transmission can be direct or through another animal that acts as a mixing vessel to reassort, pulling pieces from similar diseases randomly in, as a virus. Animals known to be factors in reassortment include pigs, ferrets, guinea pigs, camels, primates, dogs, cats, and mink. 
The reassortment process is random, but enough combinations of genetics are available that a vast group of transmissibility and lethality options are constantly being tested to see if a new version will become dominant. COVID-19 provides a recent example of a virus's evolution. For a virus to survive and reproduce requires a host capable of spreading the virus. This appears to be why so many viruses locate in the respiratory system and spread via sneezes, not because some entity determined this was the best way to survive, but because random trials found a distribution method that worked. Earlier coronaviruses survived today as the common cold, and this could be where the current pandemic virus ends up. If the virus finds the sweet spot of lethality and transmissibility for its host population, we may feel its effects for many years. One type of virus that originated on the African continent and has high lethality is Ebola. The Marburg virus is similar and of great concern, uh, but Ebola serves as a good example. Currently, Ebola is very deadly, coming into contact with fluids, but not spread by air, food, or water. Um, coming into contact with fluids of someone infected is very dangerous. Caretakers wear hazardous materials or hazmat suits, and bodies need to be burned rather than buried to eliminate contaminated bodily fluids. Countries each dealt with the recent pandemic in their own way, providing guesses as to where future epidemics could spread. To date, Ebola outbreaks have all occurred on the African continent, with travel taking the virus elsewhere in a few cases. Assuming a natural pandemic and not one spread intentionally, Ebola is likely to start in Africa where bats host the virus. Concerns about an American response come from two perspectives, lack of preparation at the border and healthcare facilities, and a focus on rights and litigiousness. A highly lethal virus just needs a tiny crack to gain a threshold in a new location. Travel testing and detection of early cases must be prioritized to be successful. In the US, a split between those willing to accept government expertise and those who insist on individual rights could end up making the US a hotbed of disease. A century ago, the mortality records of several states, including my home state of Nebraska, were considered so tainted that they were estimated based on neighboring states. We've had to resort to an excess deaths analysis to develop effective strategies to respond during the ongoing pandemic. How will we deal with the more lethal virus in the future? If we don't work together, people will die needlessly. Before we move on to part two of today's podcast, we want to tell you about ARM's ERM Advisory Services. Our ERM Advisory Team, led by Max Rudolph and myself, Dave Ingram, are available to provide a wide range of support to your enterprise risk management program. Here's an example of some of our recent work in the area of ERM training and education. The new Strategies and Risk Solutions for Executives series of newsletters, webcasts, and podcasts that you are listening to right now is our latest offering. A full range of additional ERM topics are also available for presentation in person, live via webcast, or delivered as a recording for your general staff education on ERM, for advancing training for risk management staff, or to provide background on risk management. 
For example, we have offered a general webinar for board members and executives to provide them with an overview of ERM, as well as a deeper dive into uh, the current risk concerns and risk management practices in the insurance industry. We are now working with several companies to create a bespoke version of these webcasts to allow us to tell their board about ERM with a focus on exactly what they are doing. We're happy to, to discuss your situation and how we might provide you with the help that you need to move forward, drawn from our decades of experience working with insurer ERM programs. Zoonotic uh, spillover seems to be uh, something to worry about in third world countries. Uh, why why'd you bring it up? Why, why should uh, uh, those of us in the insurance industry in developed countries be paying attention to this? Well, it's becoming very hard to keep some of these spillover diseases from, from spreading. With, with COVID-19, unrestricted initial travel saw it venture you know, quite a ways to Europe, to the United States, to other places around the world. Even before anyone realized it was loose. You know, a Marburg virus could very easily escape into war-torn Eastern Africa and, and beyond through travel from there. You know, this, and, and that's a disease that requires hazmat suits to, to treat the sick and, and you have to burn the dead, much, much more serious than, um, you know, um, influenza or, or, or COVID. Um, so a population fighting for its right to interact as, as we have in the U.S., you know, with judicial support where they're winning um, is going to face a large number of deaths in that type of scenario. It, it really scares me. Um, you'll recall that the, the Black Plague from right around 1350, and, and I was reading just this morning about a, a, another plague from uh, like the fourth century uh, that had, had similar results, but the Black Plague killed about half of Europe you know, but it created economic opportunities for the survivors because um, you got a shortage of workers. You know, half of them died. You know, somebody's got to bring in the the wheat crop and and things like that. You know, the the one from the fourth century, they said that it was taking people six months to recover. So you were you were missing all those. You know, at harvest time, you were missing all those workers. Um, but so at the same time, it also created inflation. And, and actually, in in the 14th century, it, it uh, allowed people to to travel. To they weren't stuck working at the place they had been for generations. You know, and, and their ancestors had they they were able to leave, and and some of the the, the guilds were started at that time. Um, but then we look at at smallpox carried from Europeans to the New World. You know, where it killed an estimated 90 percent of the indigenous populations of the Americas. You know, and that's due to a lack of immunity. They didn't have cows before that, and the Europeans did, and so had built up an immunity over time. Science will will protect us to a degree if if we allow it to, but it won't be perfect. We don't know everything, and we need to flatten the curve to give scientists time to develop solutions. So insurers would, you know, in, in this type of a scenario, would be hit with mortality, morbidity, you know, economic depression, perhaps, followed by inflation. Uh, and a fear of of interacting with other people. You know, how is that going to play out in a in a world where we live with with commerce? Uh, so it's not a great picture for anyone. Um, but insurers need to understand the the many ways that that COVID could have been much much worse. 
Well, but Max, aren't we, you know, uh, nearing, if not already past the end of, of what many have said is a, a one in a hundred year pandemic? Uh, should, can't we relax now? Aren't we safe for 99 years? Yeah, Dave, thanks for asking that question in a way that makes it easy to answer, given given that I know you have, you know, your personal knowledge of this topic is is as deep, if not deeper than than mine is. You know, pandemics are independent events, so may occur once per century on average, but but can happen and have happened more frequently. Uh, we could have influenza and COVID pandemics at the same time. Uh, with a vector-borne disease like West Nile thrown in for good measure at the same time. You know, wouldn't that be fun? You know, all, all these things going on at once. You know, all we can do is prepare and try to build resilience. The Egyptians kept several years of grain in storage for a reason. Uh, even fictional works like Game of Thrones held multiple years of food stores as a resilient measure. You know, what do we do? We focus on just-in-time you know, which works well until it doesn't. And that seems to be changing a little bit, but but still, I, I think if, you know, if, you know, we talked about super volcanoes a, a couple couple times ago, if we have a, you know, a crop, uh, a hit to the crops because of a super volcano or something else, you know, similar to that, you know, it, it, it's going to have large ramifications. Well, I, I got to find a bright side somewhere to this, Max. Um, haven't we learned something valuable from the coronavirus pandemic uh, that can help us to survive uh, and, and thrive during the next pandemic? Well, I'm amazed at what we learned from the 1918 era influenza pandemic that we ignored this time and, and had to learn again. Here's an excerpt from the transactions of the Actuarial Society of, of America in, in May 1919. You know, with the recent development of hygiene and sanitation as marked as it is, the world felt safe against the possibilities of any new conflagration from influenza. But the experience of the past two years, this was from 1919, uh, the experience of the past two years has demonstrated that we are not so far advanced in our knowledge of this disease of its cause and of its methods of its control as we thought we were. Epidemics may still occur with sufficient virulence to test the resources and stability, not only of life insurance companies, but also of civilization itself. I mean, that's interesting. The, the two gentlemen who, who co-authored this, this paper, James Craig was uh, you know, like a five-year uh, president of, of the, the group that's a predecessor of the current actuarial profession. And Lewis Dublin, you know, he was he was not a, an officer of the professional organizations, but he was representing uh, the government and international discussions on these topics. And, and both of them, I believe, were, were at MetLife. Um, but if we come back to today, clearly politics gets in the way, you know, especially when a new variant appears during election season. In, in the fall of 1918, Recall that was a midterm election in the U.S. We have to use excess deaths as as a proxy because the data is not accurate or consistent, and and that was true a hundred years ago too. You know, if you read some stories from the last century, uh, the actuarial profession was was hard on itself, as as I noted. You know that we were overconfident in our medical procedures. We also saw a form of of long COVID at that time and saw pregnant women impacted heavily. Uh, what's hard to tease out of the data was the indirect impact of the flu pandemic on mortality. Did it impact suicides, liver and kidney deaths? 
Uh, we should also build out testing at treatment plants for pathogens. I'm also a proponent of bringing actuaries and other financial types into the CDC resilience building and emergency response machine and reviewing what worked elsewhere, especially regarding health coverage. The, the CDC clearly has no feel for the economy or impact on assets from shutting down the country all at once. By luck, 100 years ago, this was done piecemeal in 1918, and only when there was a local outbreak was mainly due to wartime restrictions on, on coverage about health. You know, you didn't want the enemy to know that you had sickness back home, and the, the enemy didn't want us to know that they had sickness back home. So everybody had sickness back home. You know, Spain was neutral, and they were, you know, putting it in their newspapers that they had sickness back home. And so they called it the Spanish influenza, just not because it started there or any other reason, but just because they were the only ones putting it, you know, talking about it in their, in their newspaper. The regional lockdown worked much better than a total lockdown. Dave, you did a study where you looked at community response to the pandemic. Do you think it has promise for the future? Well, thanks for asking, Max. Yeah, that study that that I did with help from a, a good good group of other people, uh, we collected responses, observations of ordinary folks about what COVID mitigation practices that they were seeing in, in their communities across the country. And we were hoping that that would give us a little more insight to what was going on than just what it seemed like everybody else was paying attention to, which was what people were being told to do. I, I thought asking them what they were actually doing was, was more important than what they were told to do. Uh, we found a couple of things, and uh, we, we asked about 21 different things that, that people could do to, uh, to, to mitigate COVID, because we did repeated this every week for uh, eight months. People had a very limited tolerance for continuing these mitigations after the very first sign that infections was decreasing. So we saw... The, the, the mitigation practices and the levels of, of the infection keep going up and down and up and down. What uh, One of the things that I learned from that, at least, is that uh, people needed to be uh, taught a lot better, like what, what to expect in terms of how long things have to be, uh, be done for them, them to work. There's a lot we can learn from our experiences with COVID that may be very helpful the next time we are faced by a new spillover disease. Risk managers can be a very important part of this learning process by themselves learning and retelling these stories. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of Crossing Thin Ice, presented by Actuarial Risk Management. If you found it valuable, please feel free to share with others, like, and subscribe.